Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates, and welcome to another episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. This is episode 18 with Larry Kopald, uh, my friend and collaborator in the regenerative agriculture movement. Uh, he's found co-founder and president of the Carbon Underground, a group that has been a not-for-profit group that has been pivotal in uh, really building the regenerative movement into the natural products industry along with his co-founder Tom Newmark who will be the next guest on the podcast with me Um, and Larry and I had a fantastic uh, wide-ranging conversation from the correlation between 5G and the coronavirus to what the opportunities are for our planetary civilization um, and what some of the threats are and what some of the transformational dynamics are of this particular moment in time, as well as a a good deep dive into the strategy that underpins the Carbon Underground's um, work in the world to bring, to accelerate regenerative, accelerate and scale regenerative agriculture. So it was a lot of fun. Um, Always great to talk with Larry. uh, we, I got pretty passionate at the end there, um, you know, just talking about in, information and data integrity and how that really needs to underpin things moving forward so that this movement, which is so important to the world, isn't captured um, in today's era of shattered sense-making and knowledge and meme warfare. Uh, so um, you, those of you who've heard me ramble on about that, uh, you know, you feel free to skip that section if you want or, or listen in again. Um, anyway, I think that this was a great conversation. I ha- I'm really grateful for his time and the work that he's doing out there in the world. Uh, it's sort of an interesting um, uh, counterpoint to listen to uh, with the the conversation with uh, Lauren Cardelli from uh, a Growing Culture uh, sort of side by side because I think Larry and Tom and Lauren um, have a very healthy strategic tension and all of their hearts are in the right place and they're all very smart and dedicated and doing good work in the world. So there's kind of an interesting um, opportunity there for, I think, for for the movement, as it were. Um, so uh, please enjoy this episode, and I look forward to uh, comments, and I hope it sparks some deeper understanding amongst the listeners of this podcast who are less familiar with what's going on in the regenerative agriculture movement um, to just kind of see the massive potential and opportunity that we're serving here, both from a climate imperative as well as a business opportunity. So um, enjoy. Enjoy. And I look forward to your comments. Does this thing ever really get behind us? A lot of the big, you know, experts in this area are saying, it, you know, this virus alone isn't going away. It's just going to be, it's going to subside, but it may be a recurring event. And, uh, you know, climate scientists have been saying for 10 years this is going to start happening. And I don't know if you, did you read the MIT study on what, I think it was titled, um, We're Not Going Back 
to the way it was ever. Something like that. And it came out about 10 days ago. And mm-hmm. it, it's, I didn't read that. I'll, well, well it, if you can't find it, let me know because I've got it somewhere. But, but basically, the premise was we are now into the age of viruses. And as a result, uh, lockdown of civilization will be a recurring event several times a year. And what that means is it may be life as normal for two months. The Amber Alert goes out, everybody locked down for a month, something's coming through, we all go through. And, uh, and then, you know, a month later, they say, okay, all clear, you can all go back to school and go back to your jobs and whatever. And, and that's what they're saying the new normal is going to be. And if that's the case, I don't know how you plan. I don't know how you plan school, work, you know, sporting events, seasons. I don't know how you, how you, how you do lots of things. But I also wonder, what's the impact? Let's just say that happens twice a year. Okay, and, and they were sort of, from what I remember, intimating probably three would be a better number. But let's say twice. Let's say two months a year, the world does what it's doing right now, which is we stop driving and flying. Is that enough? With the, and we'll probably get into this today, but is that enough with the drawdown capacity of regenerating the soil to maybe get us through this thing? I don't know. I think that's a, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think I have a couple, I have, I have a lot of different lines of thought. I mean, one, I think framing, like being able to have an honest conversation about the positive, uh, like just how starkly clear it has to be to everyone that there's an inverse relationship between economic current economic activity and environmental health and how clear that is. Like, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about that, but there's sort of like a global moment where we can see the skies clear in China and we can see the waters clear up in Venice and we can see all of these like clear clear evidences of Earth's capacity to rebound and regenerate when we're not actively degenerating, eroding, extracting um, due to just sort of like the status quo economy. So that's sort of like point number one. Point number two that you're raising is what does society look like if this is the new normal? And I kind of think it clearly both of but, but point, point number one and point number two, which is, you know, that there may be a, a scenario in which due to the large, large urbanized population combined with cl- changing climate, that these sorts of pandemics are normal. Um, to me, those two points together point to they demand us to restructure our economy and our society. They have to, we have to, because we simply can't just go like, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just return to normal for two months and then we'll lock down and we'll return to normal for two months right. and we'll lock right. down. It just, it's, that's untenable, which is, I think, is what you're saying. Like there has to right. be structural changes to 
how do you, and, and I think it points towards if, if we choose to accept it, we can go two different directions. We can either go some weird totalitarian surveillance state direction with wait, crazy wait, wait, we're not there? scary technology. I thought we were there. We're, well, this is certainly this is certainly very likely to bring us much closer to that. Um, um, I mean, China is certainly there, and the West is there in a different way. Um, but you know, like how that actually crystallizes. Sort of, do we do we relocalize and do we double down on like quality of life and things that improve general human health so that we're more resilient to pandemics because everybody is just healthier and um, more connected? Or do we take the sort of like reduce, isolate, atomize, control response? You know, which of those responses do we take? Do we take or a, or a hybrid of the two. Well, I, don't I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. We, I just popped off video there. Yeah. Broke up just a little bit. Yeah. You you froze. I'm gonna I'm gonna close video. Yeah. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. Uh, well. Okay. Okay. All right. Well. I think we're down to that, and it could be my end. Could be I don't know. This time of day is a bad time for connectivity. And we can uh, you can call in if you need to. Um, yeah, I mean this is fine. If, yeah, if yeah, I, I'm happy to. But this sounds fine if this works for you. So far, so good. Yeah, we're, let's 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 keep going. So so you were just sort of going to comment. You know, likely there's some sort of hybrid. Well, I don't know that, but or there's there's a third and a fourth and a fifth that we haven't put in there. Yeah, you know, but totally, uh, totally. Well, yeah, maybe it's a false dichotomy. Although it does feel like, in my sort of in my social media bubble, my personal, you know, algorithmic bubble that I live in, that all of us seem to have our own these days, I see a little bit of what feels to be a schizophrenic um, sense making around this on the, on the sort of like the technocratic side of things, which I have connections and a feet in that world. Mm -hmm. You know, th there's very much this sort of like the new norm of isolate yourself um, for the good of the whole and 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 meanwhile, we will get a vaccine and we'll get techno technological solutions and we'll, you know, do quantitative easing and we'll do all these different things. And 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 then we'll gear up to do more of that in the future. And we'll just sort of iterate on that. And that will be the, the response. And, and then on and the other hand, this, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear your other hand in the comment. Well, the, the other hand in my you know, bubble and sort of like the intersection I sit in, you have the, um, yeah, I guess sort of more permacultural approach, which is like, hey, this is why localized sort of, you know, um, village scale communities that have their own resilience and have very short supply chains and can just sort of like isolate themselves and then, and then reintegrate at a whim 
and people have high quality of life and are very healthy and you have your sort of own, yeah, just like elders integrated in the community and healthcare kind of integrated in the community. Everybody's sort of like, duh, this is what we've been saying. You know, this is just a, this is just a healthier, more resilient way of being. And it takes, it's very different than the sort of like technocratic, you know, civilization scale approach, this sort of like more grassroots approach, you know, hey, victory gardens, hey, plant some trees, you know, like, because the issues with a pandemic like this, I mean, suffering aside, you, you know, the, the, the things about the, the, the coronavirus per se is not that scary, um, other than the, the knock-on effects it has when all of a sudden you have way more people needing healthcare and what that does to supply chain, what that may do to supply chains and what that may do to society. Um, the death toll goes up orders of magnitude. Um, so well, anyway, th uh, th those are, yeah, those are the two voices. Yeah. You know, there's so much to talk about here. I, I, you know, a sign a friend of mine who was, NIH for 25 years and, and really does know this stuff. And by the way, was the first guy I knew to self-quarantine saying, this is going to be horrible. We're staying home. And, uh, yeah. and that, was, that was five weeks ago. And what, um, what, what date was that that he did that? I would say that was, what are we, April 2nd, end of February. In, it was still in February. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, That's and, not too far off. We started, we started yeah. isolating right in the, right at the beginning of March yeah. with a yeah. few calculated risks, but that's, yeah. I mean, I was in um, Costa Rica and, uh, and the decision really, we had a conversation. Do I stay there? Or do I come back? And, yeah. um, and, and I, I actually, cause I went down there and I just, I wasn't feeling great. And, and, yeah. you know, and so Andrew's like, maybe you should just stay there. And our doctor said, no, get back here. I'm not sure it was the right decision other, other than the fact I'm with my family. Um, yeah. but, uh, but you know, it, so be it. But, you know, I, I just, I think there are, there are unbelievable lessons here. If we're open, I, amen. if we if are open, open to looking in that mirror, truly mm -hmm. looking in that mirror and not getting distracted when somebody throws a teeny bit of money at us. But, you yep. know, if we are, if we are truly uh, wanting to figure out how this happens and, oh, by the way, uh, with, you know, close to 60% of the human population living in cities, this is going to become common because we're living on top of each other. So, yeah. you know what I mean? If we don't change something, if we, you know, you know I've had uh, long conversations with people at Danone and uh, Unilever about is globalization going to survive the way, you know, we've been, it's all set up, uh, which is a wonderful question to have. I, I think the answer is, you know, when you talked about, you know, localizing and, and, and uh, victory gardens and things like that. Yeah, I think 
self-reliance, you know, something that we've, we've seen percolating for the last 10 years is probably going to get a bit of a turbo boost here. Is it going to be enough to shake systems? Probably not yet, but not yet. But, not yet but, maybe, maybe. But it maybe. depends, it depends maybe. on how bad, it depends on how bad this actually ends up being. Cause it, it, we're still, there's like a, a branching pattern of it could be really bad or it could be much, much less bad. And right. if it's really bad, then these sort of like edge uh, societal, you know, bubbles, like the self-reliance kind of homesteading space will get a huge boost. And if it's just kind of like kind of bad, it'll get a boost, but not a huge boost. Right. It'll, you know, it'll, right. We got through it. We got through it. It really wasn't yeah. that bad. Oh, we'll look back at it and, and laugh. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Did you see the, uh, the last Sunday's New York Times, the section called, I think it was The Big Empty? No, I mean, I don't read the Times, so I didn't. Oh, uh, you, need to, you need to go look at this. It's what, what it is, all it is, is it's about a, I don't know, 16-page section of photographs of cities around the world. Completely. Yeah. You see it like that. You're with me? It's, it, yeah, I'm here. You there? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, okay. yeah. You know, there's something about seeing the world empty all at the same time. And, and you literally go, oh, my God, this has never happened in history. May it never happen again. But looking at it is absolutely chilling. So, so you know, to your point, how bad is it? How much does it force us absolutely mandate that we take a serious look? And by the way, you know, if we have millions of people die from this, which is entirely possible, then the trauma of mental health, they're now saying in the United States, everybody is going to lose somebody important to them. That's a chilling thought. Are you there? You gone? Yeah. No, I'm just sitting with that. It's very yeah. chilling. I mean, it you know, is. it just hits home. I mean, seriously, you you hear that, and 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 then of course the first thing is okay. So who is that in my life? Oh my God! You know, I mean, we look at Andrea's father, who's an unbelievably healthy 92 year old, but he's a 92 year old. <clears throat> you know, if he gets sick, they don't even let him in, right? Go home, whatever, uh, you know. But um, what does that do to society? What is it doing to us that we can't be with our loved ones as they're dying? Or we can't have funerals? That, that's the big thing. That's the big thing that I keep wondering. Uh, you know, in conversations with my, you know, in-laws and my, my parents, who, you know, obviously are, are, I guess, sort of higher risk than myself or, you know, or or Amy or the kids. Um, I mean, I guess I just sort of, there's two ways you could approach this. One is full of fear, trying to avoid death at all costs. And the other is, 
I mean, obviously, as you said, there's a million ways, there's a whole spectrum, but if we just sort of divided it, one is to just sort of be like, well, we're going to optimize for care and connection and roll the dice. And if it comes up snake eyes, then you just, that's just life and death. The other is like, we're going to do everything that's humanly possible to save every single life at whatever the cost right. is. Right. Um, and then there's the whole spectrum in between. And I have to say, my parents tend to tend to more be like, I mean, they are, you know, I'm happy to say like they have their, they have plenty of space. They've got their garden, they're doing their thing. It isn't actually, they're pretty much homebodies anyway, you know, retired now and whatnot. So, um, but they're, they're more like, Hey, we're baby boomers and us and people older than us are the people, people most likely to die out from this. And, and if that happens, like, we're just glad it's not the young people that are going to die and say, la vie. this is just how it goes. Right. They're very, they're <laughs> pretty stoic about it. They're like, Hey, you know, like uh, this, it, it, like a global pandemic, like, you know, just sort of thank God it's not the Spanish influenza that was killing people in their prime who had kids and families and, you know, that's a right. gut punch, you know, right. okay. So, not that, not that young people aren't dying with this, but it's just, right. it skews older. And so there, I hear that voice and there, and I think there's probably a fair number of people who are just sort of like shrugged shoulders. Yep. This could, there's a million things. And, and if there's a million things I could die of, and here's another one. Right. Um, right. And just honestly looking at the statistics, what are your likelihood? What's the like, like, how many people die of air pollution, cumulative air pollution and lung issues every year that won't die because of this? How many people die of traffic accidents that won't be die? You know, there's right. just sort of like all these ways that civilization eats its own. And I just always want, I'm just, I'm holding all of that, just wondering, you know, how, what's the calculus of survival here that makes the most sense that preserves our humanity, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I mean, every one of these thoughts, every one of these calculations is so complicated because let's go with that for a second. Let's say that we lose a whole lot of our elders, right? But, mm. but the younger generations go on. What does that do to us as a society? Yeah. What does Nothing that I mean? I, I, you know, my my gosh! I mean, you know, you know. Look at your kids and how they look at their grandparents. Look at at mm. you know. I, I just I don't know what that means. You know, uh, the 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 again the emotional, the family history, the passing down, the sharing of tradition. What what is what is that? dent going to do it is a huge dent it's such a crazy transformation to think about and i mean may it may the best possible thing happen which is that this serves to reconnect this in gratitude with our elders who our society tends to shove away into nursing homes and like this society, society you know 
Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, there's another thing. Let's go the other direction. So I have a 14-year-old, right? And, and I have been raising this kid right now in the age of technology and, and you know, yeah. as, as you are raising yours. And, 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 and the, the concern when you see a room with six girls in it, they're in her bedroom and they're all hanging out. And they're all talking and they're laughing and they're, but they're on their devices and they're not looking at yeah. them. And there's no, yeah. there's no feedback from the facial expressions. And you sit there and you go, okay, so what, what we've been worried for a long time, you know, and then we do, okay, no device time and whatever. But what's so interesting is that my daughter, and she's on her device more than ever, right? And we have to allow it. But yeah, but but she is missing human contact with her friends. And mm. and and we've talked to her. I think that one of the outcomes of this is that kids go, you know what? Connecting on a device doesn't replace being with one another. And that's yeah. a beautiful awareness. It, it's it out. Um, I mean, and I think there's, I, I have the sense that that it's sort of like, you know, a, a, an analog to that is, you know, people's algorithmic social media bubbles and troll, the trolls and the election and the echo chambers and decrease of the capacity of collective sense making due to technology and, and how people I mean, I guess the, I actually think sort of in a similar way to how you're watching your, your daughter wake up and make a choice about how she interacts with technology and what she prioritizes. I have the sense that that is also happening essentially at, at a societal scale. I, I actually have more hope. I have more hope that, that people will be like, you know what? Actually, I can, you know, like I can take some responsibility to look at my filters and some other things and make sure I get a balanced diet of news and other things. And I'm going to just do that. And, you know, and people sort of build immunity to meme warfare in essence. I mean, I, I feel like I've, that's, I've watched myself do that. I've watched yeah. myself say, you know, like I have to, I know that people are, actively trying to manipulate me and therefore I have to do the following things. I need to, I need to actively stretch beyond places that I would normally read from and um, actively look for multiple points of view and be conscious of, you know, you can sort of just sense when something is sort of been engineered for viral clickbaitness and right. <laughs> you sort of be aware. It's like an immunity that builds up. And I think the same thing is true. I hope the same thing is true around addictions, around technology. But I also, I do fear that it's like an unprecedented moment. Every, you know, Zoom records everything on that we're talking about and they sell everything to third parties, just like all the other big companies, you know, yeah. Google, every, there's just, there, at the same time, there's like an unprecedented load through the surveillance capitalist system, unprecedented data about human behavior in times of stress is, is being 
you know, hoovered up and held privately to do what with? You know, is it going to be used to increase public health? Maybe. Is it going to be used to sell us shit? Definitely. You know, anyway, I mean, that's just sort of like an awareness I I have as I walk around. I go on a walk. I still have my phone in my pocket. I'm like, man, you know, I, I sure would love to have just like beautiful private human connect, not even private, you know, right, but right, like right. non-agenda, agenda-free human connection without like sitting around with people that I love in a campfire where I'm not being listened in on um, so that somebody can sell me something, you know, the next day when I hop on Google. Or, or, <laughs> or, or let's get the next step, um, surveil for other reasons. Like obviously that's what- right what China's done with their good citizen program. But, but the, and I'm sure you've seen the videos and read the articles about uh, the possibility that this virus, which as we know is not an organic thing, uh, may be related to the rollout of 5G. And, and have you read all of that or seen any of these? I, I, I looked at some of those. I didn't, I chose not to read very much of that, but maybe I should revisit it. Well, uh, here's, so my cousin is one of the experts, has been on the impact of EMFs and Wi-Fis and now 5G. She's MIT, Harvard. And, um, and so when I got the first video about this, that, that really went deep in the science of it and how you know how everything vibrates at a frequency right all mass vibrates all things vibrate and and what is fascinating and she validated this is that 5g vibrates at at a level of 60 you know what else vibrates at a level of 60 oxygen and 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 so that was an interesting fact that people started looking at and then they just traced and i'm not saying it is or it isn't what she has said is it very well possibly be, but you certainly can't conclude. But if you look at 5G, which was basically created in the Wuhan district, next it went to uh, South Korea, who ramped it up. Then it went to Northern Italy that ramped it up. You, you know, New York, Silicon Valley, and LA have it the worst in the United States where it's been launched. Um, you, you know, okay, you could argue, you know, um, maybe. That, that, that gave it its, its windows in the universe to come in? Maybe, I don't know. But, but you know, it, it is fascinating that, you know, 5G is not about, you know, downloading a movie faster. It's all about surveillance. And so, you know, when you talk about the stuff you're talking about, and, you know, I, I, if, if the irony of this is, that this big new tool to keep us all under control tanked the global economy. Probably the biggest oops in the history of humankind, right? And, yeah, that's very interesting. That's an interesting uh, take on it. I, I um, well, one of the things that I, I guess one of the questions I have is, you know, most people who have a home internet system and a router ha- are, are swimming in five gigahertz um, Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. which is the same, which is the same frequency that they're using at a, you know, those are just like mega routers that well, are being put up. 
cities. Yeah, it's kind of like being under a dome. Is how it's described. You know, so so um, you know, it's an inescapable envelation of us, and that that's where yeah. it really messes with you. Yeah. Yeah, well, and maybe we'll all, now that everybody's just at home with their five gigahertz routers, uh, maybe that's just uh, <laughs> going to be even worse. I mean, it's totally, I, I certainly don't belittle at all the the need to do rigorous, to, to understand rigorously. And I'm much more of a precautionary principle sort of guy. Like we, why? why adopt something new uh that may have unforeseen risks and maybe this is maybe it you know you can't say one way or the other is this a consequence of that there may be some correlation is it causation it's hard to say the same places that have the human density tend to be the first places to get 5g so there there could be a number of different causal relationships and it may be complex and it may be multiple things converging it may be proximity those happen to be global hubs of travel plus 5g somehow makes it easier to spread or or you know more deadly or who knows what you know i was talking to a friend of mine at, at google last week and we were talking about 5g and and i said um so you guys are going big into 5g he goes we are and i said why <laughs> there was this really interesting pause and he goes you know we don't really know and I said, okay, that's a strange answer. And he said, well, 5G is a faster ability to move data. It's really what it is. He said, moving data just fine. Nobody's complaining anymore that it's too slow. And it's kind of like taking a car that can go today 120 miles an hour and making it go 500 miles an hour. Why? And I thought that was such an interesting comment. Yeah. I mean, what else could people be spending all of that infrastructure investment on? I well, mean, right. I, I mean, don't know. You, Maybe retooling, re retooling global food systems or yeah, something. How about, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we might be able to think of a few things. Yeah, how about that? That, that would be kind of interesting. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, you and I remember dial-up. We remember this stuff, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, now, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I, I was listening to this guy and he was saying, so, you know, <clears throat> this is pre-virus, but he said, he said, so you're driving in your car and you want to find out the way to get somewhere. So you take your phone out and you punch the address in and your phone sends a signal to a satellite that analyzes where your car is at that exact moment and where the places you want to go and some of them even analyze the traffic and it calculates a route for you to take and if it doesn't happen in five seconds you get impatient and it's so true i mean think about what just happened and and you're right if you're sitting there for a couple of seconds it's not instant so if we're used to fairly instant technology feedback and, you know, we can calculate at this point hundreds of billions of calculations a second, right? What do we need the speed for?
What are we doing? It, it well, I mean, the, the answer is, lies in, you know, AI, big data, uh, smart cities, um, the, like the vision of, you know, it, it isn't about the humans interacting with it. It's about the non-human agents that, that actually can use that uptick in speed to, you know, increase their ability to, to imbibe data and, and run calculations and take actions. So, so why do we need it? The good and the bad of that. I, I mean, I think the yeah. answer is we don't. What right. do we need? I mean, this is the this is the the the, the challenge here, from my perspective, Larry, is that you, um, I mean, we could go into a couple of different kind of off the deep ends. I, I forget who the gentleman is who who said this, one of the sort of like techno futurist Silicon Valley people um, talks about uh, humans as the reproductive organ of technology Mm. that, that we're just incubating this like new Silicon based life that's going to be birthed and have different um, and be you know, from that perspective, you know, I mean, the, the people who sort of like resonate with that as a, as an exciting thing, um, I, I think tend to be fairly misanthropic. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's, the whole, perspective. that's the whole transhumanist movement. Exactly. Right. That, that's, and, that's right. And so, so, but there is a, there is a truth that there's sort of like different levels of this. There is there is an unavoidable truth that that sort of like culture, technology, and our economy are inexorably linked into a complex coevolutionary feedback. And so, technology itself is sort of you could. It, it, I think it is accurate to think of itself as, in some way, like its own living organism that's doing its best to feed itself. That it has no no. Um, it's not just like humans are just like in the driver's seat here, you know, like the technology itself is a strange attractor that, that's st- that has its own generator functions that, that are moving it. And humans are agents of that, but it's flipped. It isn't just people. We can't, I don't think we can get the proper sense making and meaning making from thinking like, why are those people motivated to do that? Why is Google motivated to do that? Google is essentially like a giant machine. It's not it, like the sum of Google and the way Google behaves is best thought of not as just sort of like a bunch of humans. It's a hive and the humans are serving something that is not no longer human. I think, you know, and I mean, that's a strong position to take and I hold it loosely, but I yeah. think it makes more sense. It's more explanatory. It has more explanatory power from my perspective to give me, to help me make sense of why the hell, why the hell would people just do that just to do it. Oh, because that technology has some agenda itself that is not just like human welfare and planetary uh, balance and health. Technology has a different set of things that it's optimizing for, and it has essentially captured these corporate entities 
in a way you could, you know, again, strong positions loosely held, but you can do a thought experiment. Is this true? Has it just captured these, you know, the saying, Facebook, you know, Amazon, Apple, uh, arguably Apple's the least captured of those, um, Google, and it's just, you know, a self, sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just techno, it's, op, it's sucking energy out of the, you know, human and ecological spheres and pouring it into technology for something that who knows if I can even conceptualize why it, and certainly it doesn't have any proximate benefits for myself or my family or my community, really. Yeah. I, I um, mean, I, li- I listen to you and I, 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 I understand intellectually everything you're saying. And I, and I, 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 my first reaction was, well, like, you know, every generation we hear that in one form or another, you know, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard said, you know, uh, that, 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 we, the earth was never more than a chrysalis and, and we're on our way to being completely spiritual beings. And, mm-hmm. and that's what evolution is all about. And we just well, it's like rewarmed Gnosticism. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I think that that's true. There's a long spiritual tradition that, that remakes itself at every generation. I, what you're saying is absolutely true. And that is, it's sort of like transhumanist technological perspective. It's not that different from like Christianity, really, well, well, of like the rapture. See, it's the same story in a different way. Well, in, in a way, and where I was going to go with it is I, I don't doubt that technology is going to increasingly, I'm trying to think of the word, I don't want to say control, um, but, but, but influence, run many components of our lives. I don't doubt that because. Um, because that train's left the station. We're just not going back to caves. And, and um, we need to manage them in ways humans just can't process fast enough to do it. So, so I, I, I understand that. But I also happen to be, you know, a Jewish pantheist. And, and I believe wholeheartedly in the concept of Ubuntu. And I believe that, that, you know, we, we, we belong to a whole of nature. We don't belong to a whole of man-made technology. And so yeah. for me, if we don't figure out a way to keep the former healthy, then we're buying ourselves a short-term efficiency joyride. And, and, and all hell's going to break loose. I mean, I resonate with that. Uh, uh, Ubuntu or, or Aini in the Quechua language, the sort of like the web of, or Imlakesh uh, in Mayan, the the sort of like interconnected, um, interdependent wholeness of, uh, Charles Eisenstein calls it interbeing these days, that uh, concept. And I think that's, that is, I resonate with that. I'm not, you know, Ted Kaczynski over here. Um, I mean, well, obviously, by the way, I, well, by the a, way, was not wrong on a lot of things. But go on. I well, I totally. I I'm, I may not be Ted Kaczynski, but I have his book close at hand uh, yeah. as a sort of cautionary tale. Uh, yes. As a as someone who's who's active in the technology space um, now. Um, yeah. 
you know, and, and I made that decision not because I'm particularly techno utopian, but because I feel like there ha we have to reconcile the massive enticing potential for efficiency that digital technology provides with the interconnected wholeness and health of our home, the planet. And that's, to me, that's the imperative of, of the day. You know, it's like, that's just the work. That is the work. That's the Dharma right now, right. at least right. my own. And I think maybe at a generational level as well, um, it feels like the imperative right now to explore that dynamically and, you know, with big hearts and, and discerning minds. That's just what we need to do. And, and this coronavirus moment is certainly an initiation one way or the other and with any initiation like cathartic disruptive shake-up um something some new state will become out of this that is for sure i i i hope it's for sure i, I i'm not i'm not convinced i'm i'm hopeful i really am i i I mean, the reason I say that is I think that the the spiraling down is is happening faster than the building up right now. And I think what you're saying, and I agree with, is that the building back up, the rebuilding, the, however you want to look at it, is going to accelerate. No question. But is it going to get there in time? I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I, so. I mean, yeah, that I is the question. That yes. is the question. And, you, you know, we have to just behave as if it may not. And we have to pour everything into, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a paradox, you know, um, do you, do you track at all the like game B movement? I don't, I don't. Game B movement uh, is sort of, you know, I think sort of loosely affiliated or emerged out of the Santa Fe Institute. And it's, you know, I, I'd sort of put it in the constellation of there's like the metamodernist, nascent metamodernist sort of movement, which is kind of political almost. And then there's Game B, which is kind of like the, the, this group of people. And they're kind of cousins to the regenerative movement in a way. Um, and, and they're basically saying game A is this like rivalrous competitive. It's the world we live in, you know, where, you know, uh, everything, everything is the way that it is now. And, and to get ahead in society, you have to behave certain ways and do certain things. And the economic game is rigged in a particular way. And game B is sort of this vision of and an and invitation to imagine what this sort of like, I guess you could say game theory is that underpins a society that values like non-rivalrous cooperation for the good of the whole over like being the winner of a rivalrous war or market economy or whatever it is, you know? So that's the, <laughs> well, that's the basic. I mean, I, you know, uh, that, certainly reflects a lot of the discussion going on right now. You know, we hear the very simplistic, you know, well, the virus doesn't know borders, right? But you know what does know borders is global trade. 
And, and so, you know, what you're talking about is an economic system based on global trade, which in and of itself just really may not continue. It's not going to continue the way it is right now. And, you know, I mean, I look at the projects that the Carbon Underground was absolutely, you know, ramping up to spectacular uh, opportunities of level. And, and everything's basically, hopefully, just on hold because borders are closed. And we can't move people and we can't move goods and we can't move experts and we can't move this. And, you know, technology is, is, is helpful, uh, but probably more helpful later on in, in some of these projects. But, you know, so uh, the game B movement, and I, and I will uh, look it up. I, mean, I want to get smarter about it. But, but it sounds like you could almost call it the common sense movement, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, it sort of there's some underpinning. I mean, different folks are sort of pivotal in as thought leaders. Uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, um, Jordan Hall, um, uh, Jim Rutch. These folks, you know, they're laying out a very cogent argument. I mean, the, the premises of the argument are essentially like a human nature is malleable. Meaning in different cultural contexts, people exhibit different things and the sort of the presumption that people are selfish and um, it, it is only, you know, it's, it's because of our cultural context, you know, it's sort of like the standard. It's like if you read any anthropology, you would know, right, if, that, that right. there's right. The, the different human societies and different conditions exhibit wildly different behavior patterns and social structures and things like that. So it's like the first premise, which is inviting us to design or think about how we actually structure society in the best way and rethink markets and institutions in light of that. So like premise one, premise two is if you have exponential technology um, and you have an arms race with that exponential technology, oh, nuclear you. weapons or you know, AI or whatever it is, eventually you get to a place where the probability of mutual annihilation is very high. <laughs> so if you keep doing that over and over again, we're all fucked. Right. right. <laughs> Basically. Right. <laughs> it's premise two, you know, and, and uh, you, you sort of come with those two basic, I think fairly unarguable premises, it very quick, you, quickly leads you to, okay, if that's true, then we need to start taking, you know, particular actions around, you know, the way that our businesses are structured and the way that our families interact and the way that our, so like, way we engage with local and national politics to, you know, essentially try to create conditions so that Hopefully, and I guess another premise is it's very hard to change adult behavior. You have to, like, the kids need to be socialized in a, in a way that allows them to inherit a system that is trending towards non-rivalrousness. Right. Um, right. Uh, that's, the other, that's the other piece of this. Is I, I, we, you know, you sort of just cross your fingers and hope we don't fuck it up in the next 20 years and then do everything you can to, you know, invest in the next generation, I guess, is, is in a way the most cogent. And again, this is plan B. This isn't 
I mean, it, it sort of resonates with my theory of change pretty strongly, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of claiming this is my own or necessarily, yeah, a strategy. I mean, I would endorse it, I guess, but it's, it's, yeah, I think there's other things that they miss that, for instance, sort of their, in quotes, regenerative movement pick up on around what kind of businesses and livelihood and sort of where the opportunities are in today's economy to bridge to a future economy that is based on regenerating our planetary ecological commons. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when we're done doing that, let's talk about humanity's behavior toward one another. Right. Let's, well, know, that's, and that's where plan B is very firmly. Right entrenched they're sort of saying like look the you know which i don't i i totally agree with they're, they're basically saying like you can't just and i don't know it's sort of a chicken or the egg right but but they're sort of saying you you the, the emphasis kind of ends up being on social like new forms of governance new forms of education new forms of social arrangement that that the hypothesis is increases creativity to the degree which those sorts of organizations and and kind of like you know social structures can outcompete sort of a rivalrous hierarchical corporate or governmental stru- structure so you can survive off just the pure creative output yeah but a, but I, I, and I, you know i don't know maybe that's true i come at it from a, a somewhat different point of view you know i don't believe that when you're in the throes of stage four brain cancer, you start a new, uh, you know, work with a new trainer. Uh, you know, I, I, I really think that living under the existential threat of the host no longer being able to support us uh, and a, a, a projection of 15 years from now having 2 billion environmental refugees on earth and we're already you know well over 100 million so so you know we're on our way um until we can stabilize that until we can remove that it's going to be really hard to focus on some of these other critically important things but but you know i i just and it's why i'm doing the life work i'm doing uh, I don't agreed. Believe, yeah, agreed. Just, so, so I, 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 if, if what I'm hearing you say, and I completely understand, and in some respects agree with the logic of it. If you're going to rebuild, if you're going to redesign, um, do it holistically this time. You know, I get it, and and, and the truth is, it will never sustain itself without that that's the i think that's the truth is that we can't even we can't actually successfully reduce the like climate change to a single you know to a single problem to solve it's a symptom of a of a root cause that's much deeper that that gets us re-tangled up with the social questions well and and i think if you live under a constant threat of Floods, droughts, fires, no food, no water, little things like those. 
Um, okay. I just, I just don't know how there's more bandwidth because that's going to suck more and more of it up. And, and I, so, yeah. And, and, you know, totally. maybe, maybe we're coming back full circle to the beginning of this conversation about who, what do we have to give up for the whole? And at the beginning it was, well, you know what, maybe it's some of the seniors for the sake of, of the youth. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I'm never one to say with, 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 with anything other than a broken heart, do we need to put some of these more human issues a little bit less on the front burner while we, while we at least, you know, give us a, a healthy place to live on? I don't know. It's interesting. My last conversation, my last podcast conversation was with uh, Lauren from uh, A Growing Culture. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I think he was sort of making a, an impassioned and emphatic defense of the social has to come first. And, you know, sort of like the critique of the, you know, regenerative movement in quotes uh, that that there's sort of this sort of like working from the opposite end of the question. Uh, and saying like, first we have to stabilize these basic things because otherwise, you know, if you just think of Maslow's hierarchy, otherwise, otherwise people just aren't even in a place to have this conversation about governance or cooperation or transforming society. If you just had your house burned down or flooded or, you know, the supply chains are broken and there's no food because of soil erosion or whatever it is, we can't even have, and I mean, I think it's sort of both and one of the things that I recently, one of the pieces of wisdom that, that, that I've been thinking about a lot is just this sort of idea of, you know, be good to one another or else. What are the consequences if you don't, if you're not good to each other is that people end up fighting each other in the midst of collapse and right. that depletes the ability of society to actually respond to reality. And instead you are in, you know, a war in the midst of collapse. So I, I kind of don't see a way I, I, around. I couldn't agree more. I, 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 both. Right. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be a radical, you know, you, you work with what you've got. I don't think we can, I think we can keep, the invitation and the image of a pretty radically different society and a different relationship to markets, not that they're going to like disappear or something, but a different way that people relate to markets and globalization and governance and these sorts of things while being very pragmatic and dealing with what we have with the sort of imperative of, you know, be good to one another or else, you know, you well, can't respond well, to crisis without right. having integrity. Right. I, you know, and I, and I would guess, you know, and I understand Lauren's point of view, knowing Lauren. Um, and there's no way I'm going to argue against his point of view. Um, yeah. I would hope he wouldn't argue against my point of view here. But, uh, you know, the, the beauty of what we're talking about is if you were to, and let's not, uh, you know, let's be clear here. We're not saying either or. We're saying which gets the priority and which comes right underneath it, right? I think that's what we're talking about. And, and the beauty is both of those boats must and will rise together. They have to. They have to. 
If you focus on taking care of people and creating their sovereign ability to care for themselves and grow food and, and you know, have community and things like that, the planet will do better. Uh, and conversely, if you restore the soil and you take poisons out of the air, so children aren't born with 200 you know, chemicals in their bodies, you know, um, there's just no way that society is not going to benefit and improve. You have, you have a greater capacity for it on either side, whichever way you look. So, I, yeah. you know, I, I, no, I, just, I agree. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm just, I am, I'm more fearful of the natural systems snapping and what that might do. And I am more heartbroken of the mistreatment of, of, of parts of humanity toward other parts of humanity. So what a, what a, you know, so the good news is, and it really is good news is, is I am, well, you know, I used to say I'm an optimist looking at, 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 you know, what, what actually could happen here. And, uh, you know, when you look at the healing capacity of nature, which is astonishing, and we've never truly tested it other than, you know, blocking off a fishery and watching it restore itself. And it's always, always faster and uh, a, a greater rush to abundancy than we had predicted. So, so that gives me a lot of hope in that. But, but recently, uh, I've been, and I, and I apologize, I don't even remember where I first heard it, but somebody was talking about the fact that, that um, they were asked how, how they could be optimistic given all the stuff going on. And their response was, they're not an optimist, they're a possibilist. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's a real wonderful distinction. Because an optimism, optimism is somewhat passive. And possibility puts more engagement responsibility out there. And that gets me more excited. And I think it's, it, you know, it's very interest, interesting. So, you know, when we look at going back to the conversations about technology and, and what it is doing, what it's going to do, what it can do, what we don't even know it can do, um, shit, you know, I'm, I'd like just not to have to wear glasses anymore. Um, you know, mm-hmm. can we start there? I'm being facetious. But, but, but the... You know, when you look at the tools that we have and the, but then you have to, we have to come together and do the overlay of application, right? So, uh, you know, how cool is it that, that oil has, the price of oil has tanked and gas is going to 99 cents a gallon. Gee, how great is that? Well, of course it's not, it's horrible. You know, and, 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 you know, why we're not, you know, do, you know, creating uh, a, a defense act initiative right now to to convert everything to renewable power. I mean, it's it's all. We know what we can do. It always comes to back to what we will do, and and you know, I I I think this moment that we're living in, I think the irony, and I have so much faith in both nature and the, the, the spiritual 
games that the universe loves to play of the the irony of a respiratory virus shutting down a planet and people all over the world in the cities going oh my god i can feel how much cleaner the air is you can measure i know how much cleaner the yeah. you know the earth is literally breathing better because we're dealing with a respiratory virus and and yeah it, it, I don't know what to make out of that. Maybe that's just a funny little way of, of looking at it. But I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I don't think that, that, you know, we have spent the last 200 years with a ramp up over the last 50 compromising the planet's immune system. Is this really a surprise that this is happening right now? Of course it's not. So, but, but no, not know, at all. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, there, there, there aren't magic bullets, but there are. And I don't even like that expression anymore. But, but, but magic wands. How about that? Let's say that. But, but um, you know, <laughs> when when you look at things like the regenerative movement, which, you know, it was seven years ago that this awareness percolated up for the first time maybe the first time in you know the modern world but percolated up the the true importance of soil in ways we didn't know both the bad and the miraculously good uh and look what we've done you know we can do this stuff it's 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 the most important thing in the world how you know feeding feeding the world and and providing healthy water and now we knew something that restores the capacity to do both of those. Um, and, 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 you know, when you have it named, predicted to be the number one food trend for 2020, that's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. So there is, yeah, you know, and, yeah. And, you know, you could sit there and you could argue that, that, Technology is really important there because we all look at the, the, the data of the, the, the soil transformation or the carbon sequestration or all of the things that we're, we're measuring and creating tools to measure. But the truth of the matter is we don't really need any of that, do we? If we all just farmed in a regenerative way, regenerative way it's still going to have the effect. So, you know, again, big, big opportunities to look in the mirror. You know, technology is a tool, right? You know, like so many things, communications is a tool. What do we do with this stuff right now? Well, I certainly agree that agriculture is the most, is the imperative intervention point. I mean, I think... You know, if you if you add together, you know, in, in drawdown in the drawdown book, they sort of fragmented out, you know, ag and land use into you know like fifteen different subcategories. Mm -hmm. And if you if you recombine all of those, it blows everything else out of the water in terms of the the drawdown potential, um, both in emissions reduction as well as in sort of net sequestration. It also is 
the foundation. It's the very foundation of civilization. So it, it is like, that's where everything, like our relationship to how we extract nutrition from the environment in order to make humans and, right. and how we do that, how we do that both and how the soil ends up and how, you know, the workers end up and how the supply chain works, all of that, that is, there's an irreducible complexity there, which, you know, we refer to as in quotes, agriculture. I, I keep wanting a better word than agriculture yeah, because right. of course, agriculture refers spe specifically to a, a, a style of, you know, uh, creating nutrition out of landscapes that generally is like annual tillage, you know, and, and, uh, and it is bigger than that, you know, that there's, there's all these agroforestry and wild and um, I mean, there's just so many different ways that people engage in producing nutrition in gardening, you know, right. their landscape. So I, I keep struggling with like, what do we actually call that? Right. I don't know. Right. Um, it's the umbrella that, that's more accurate, but I, I agree. I mean, that's been my life's work. It's your life's work. I'm very excited with how much progress has been made there. I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a good time to just talk about that for a moment because we've been sort of like, you know, doing, I, I think, a completely uh, relevant and situationally appropriate walk around, you know, just like where we are as a civilization in this crazy moment. You know, this, of course, this podcast is going to date itself pretty right. easily because we're right. talking right. so much about this this present moment like pre pre peak of coronavirus in the united states um so it's on our minds but I, I, yeah i think it'd be interesting to to talk a little bit about the strategy that the carbon underground has had you know sort of focused on transforming the global uh, food system, the successes or almost successes, you know, obviously the, as you were noting, the conditions of globalization may, we don't know yet be taking a pretty radical turn. Um, but you know, the, the strategy nonetheless has created a lot of awareness and a lot of will and, and, and some pretty significant transformation already. So I, yeah, I'd be interested for you to just kind of like outline that for folks who are listening and for me as well, you know, what, what's the carbon underground been focused on and what's the overarching strategy been and, and how is it going? Um, I think we've sort of teed that up really nicely at this stage of the conversation. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> right. Given, given what we're all trying to accomplish here. Um, so, yeah. so for anybody listening who doesn't know, uh, Carbon Underground was created in 2013, uh, and it was it was created after the information started percolating up around the world that there's a relationship between uh, soil health and climate change, and that that's really what we were born out of. Uh, Tom Newmark uh, and I co-founded it. We at the time were both on on the board of Greenpeace and some other big boards. We're very committed environmentalists, and and um, it, it, I won't speak for him. I was somewhat uh, awakened, embarrassed, pick your word, 
that I had been out there talking about climate change for so long, writing about it and, and you know, working with big corporations in my day job in the, in the advertising world. Um, and I didn't really quite even understand the dynamics of it. And, and none of us did, but I was out there, you know, standing on a soapbox a lot. And so mm -hmm. when we saw an opportunity to turn our approach to it on its head, and, and what I mean by that is, is have people understand the carbon cycle a little bit differently than we had. We had, we had spent the last, well, we're about to hit the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, so, so 43 years, whatever it was, um, demonizing carbon. And, you know, we got to get rid of carbon and we got to stop carbon emissions and, you know, they're killing us and they're harming the planet. And, and, and it was misguided on so many levels, not the least of which, um, as we all know, we are carbon-based life forms. We wouldn't be here without it. And, and we have never created a single molecule of carbon ever. All we yeah. do is move it around. So when you start to understand it in that sense and put it in context of emissions, take carbon from the ground and put it up in the atmosphere. And guess what? You know what? That's happened over time before. We've had major volcanic periods on this planet. You know, we've had we've had we've been at seven thousand parts per million, not four hundred and fifteen or sixteen or whatever today's number is, seven thousand. And interestingly, what nature did each time is ramped up photosynthesis and drew it back down, and there was an explosion of abundance. And when you start looking at it and go, why isn't that happening right now? And it's because we haven't focused on the drawdown component. And so we started looking not only at understanding that better, and, and you know, we hosted the first gathering really ever on it. We, we had people from 23 countries come down to the farm in Costa Rica, scientists, and, uh, and a couple of big corporations. And, and, and uh, a lot happened there. There was a lot of information that got shared for the first time. Uh, you know, some people say the regenerative movement really took off there. Regen International was born there. And, and it was really born out of a need to understand and have some sort of hub that regenerating the earth was critically important, but that you could have multiple reasons for doing it. It could be climate change. It could be uh, food production. It could be human health. It could be the restoration of fresh water, all these types of things. So, so, um, and, and what we did at the Carbon Underground, we sort of looked at, okay, so what got us excited was not that there was a solution to some big problem out there, because we all know that there are solutions to lots of big problems out there that do not get implemented because we don't have the will. But Tom and I come from the world of big business, and we said, well, wait a minute, you know, the, the, the biggest industry in the world, the food industry, is going to benefit from this. The third largest industry in the world, the fiber industry, highly dependent on agriculture and healthy soil, is going to benefit from this. So, so now we're able to use the 
levers of business in a positive way for the planet rather than uh, fall prey to the, the false hope of, you know, it's, it's the environment or the economy. And so uh, that got us very to a corporation. And it's still the case, you know, in, in, in most companies, you say, how's your supply chain doing, especially those of you dependent on agriculture, you know, you just see the fear in their eyes. And, yeah. you know, so, so, you know, it's collapsing at the farm level. And, and, you know, all of these companies are going, I don't know what the yield will be next year. I don't know where the yield will be next year. So, so, uh, and oh, by the way, I don't know what the cost is going to be next year. So it's kind of hard to plan. So when you walk in with something that says, well, we can, we can help restore the health of that. And I'm not saying us, I'm saying we, the regenerative movement. Um, it, it, it falls on some, some different ears than if you walk in <clears throat> through, the, through the sustainability door. And so that got us very excited. And, and we spent, you know, five years, whatever, uh, doing everything we could to help grow the movement. And, and about late 2018, early 19, we had a very serious change in direction. We completely planned for it. We, we changed our mission statement to uh, very simple. And, and it is to uh, accelerate the transition to regenerative agriculture to mitigate the climate crisis. And I'm mm-hmm. sorry, to, to accelerate it at scale. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's what very, was it before? <clears throat> oh, it was about educating the world and, you know, um, the kinds of things that I think the movement, any movement needs in its early stages. And, and it <laughs> still needs it, but we're now mature enough as a movement. It, you know, this is, this is a classic example of, you know, Buckminster Fuller's don't attack the current model, create a better one and people will move to it. Yeah. There are not a whole lot of people who are fighting the fact that, that restoring soil health and keeping it healthy is a better model for the food. Industry. No, I mean, no one, I don't experience, I mean, there's different layers of skepticism, like right. sort of entrenched skepticism yeah. here and there, but no one right. is arguing with the basic premise that agriculture that actively improves soil health and sequesters carbon is better if it's achievable than the alternative. <laughs> well, correct. And when you do an overlay with the fact that the current system is collapsing, absolutely collapsing, you, you totally. know, yeah. so you're, yeah. you're not sitting here saying, Hey, we got something cool over here, but you're really, I know you're happy where you are because nobody's happy where they are. And so <clears throat> this, <clears throat> excuse me, this, this train is out of the station and that's a fantastic, beautiful, wonderful thing. So what we did is we said, okay, so our DNA comes from, you know, the big business world. So we understand strategies and projects and development and stuff like that. So, so we said, let's migrate. Let's shift our own strategy into, and it's really those two things I called out, accelerating the movement and scaling the progress. So we said, rather than 
do what we were doing. Let's, let's now focus on projects, specific projects that accelerate and scale. And they do it by either the inherent size of the project or the replicability of the project. There's different ways that you can achieve those results. So uh, we moved into things, and I'll, I'll tell you a few of them. Uh, I think we, we touched on it earlier. You know, the, the Thailand project, we spent about eight months. We were invited in to Thailand, and um, we were sitting in a hotel room with the Minister of Agriculture, and we went in, and they wanted to learn about regenerative. And, and uh, so we, we, were, we did a very short presentation. And what made it, I think, different than many of the others is that what we had learned about Thailand is the reason they were so interested in doing something for their soil is because they're a Buddhist nation. They are a farming nation, 35 million farmers. They said to us, our soil is dead. The only way we grow things is by putting more chemicals, which are you know, poisoning it more and poisoning our people. This is not good. Our farmers are no longer able to support their families. And, and, and it is so important, you know, that the you know, World Soil Day is on December 5th because the UN wanted to, to honor uh, Rama the Ninth, the previous king of Thailand, who walked the entire country of Thailand with bags of seeds for decades, giving seeds to farmers, saying, if you, if you learn how to grow food, your family will never go hungry. Don't grow poppies, grow food. And he, and he gave this, this transition capacity to the people, and he's beloved for uh, for doing that. So, so this is inherent in the, the, the identity that the Thai people have. And so we said, this is, this is going to restore that. If you restore your soil health, you bring all of that back. You bring the capacity back. You, 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 you bring the, the spiritual health back that they felt. And, and the minister is literally crying. Right there, we're in this, this small, he's literally crying. And he says to us afterwards, he said, Tom and I were there. And, and he said, will you take a ride with me? And we said, sure. And we went for a long ride outside of Bangkok. And I don't know, an hour and a half drive. And now we're into uh, farmland. And I use the term loosely. And he has the car pull over on the side of the road, run a little highway. And he says, this is my farm. We grow rice on my farm. And it looked like cracked concrete. It literally mm -hmm. looked like cracked concrete. And he said, it's dead. Can you bring my soil back to life? And we said, yes, we can. And, and that began a process that took, I mean, this was an eight-month development process, but we finally... Uh, have, we have signed a, a partnership with the Ministry of Thailand where regenerative ag and the, the methods that we use and, and partner with everybody in the movement on regenerative 
have been written into the new government of Thailand. Every time there's a new king, they, they literally create a new government. And, and as you know, they had a new king last year. So it's literally written into the, the new ministry of Thailand to restore the soil. And what they're looking to us to do is bring the expertise. Uh, uh, come up with plans for what should be going on, bring the partners from a buying standpoint. So who are the companies out there that want to buy regeneratively grown ingredients? And, and they can be big and they can be small. And, uh, and so, and if we do that, if we do those things, because, and by the way, we said that to them in our initial conversation, we said, you know what? There is a growing demand for something that has a very limited supply. And if you grow this, people will come. And if that doesn't you know, show itself to be true, we know that your commitment will go away and, and you know, you'll go back to the old ways of doing things. So, so we do believe we can bring customers in for it. And so what they said is, great, if you do those things, we will provide, and this is critical to that acceleration of the movement, we will provide the labor and the funding for the transition of the farmers and the training and education of the farmers, which is that last thing is one of the biggest obstacles to the, to the accelerating of the shift to regenerative, because who pays for that? You know, if I'm yeah. General Mills and I'm, I'm use, buying 10% of the output of a farm, am I really going to pay to train that farm and subsidize my competition? I'm not going to do it. So, so unless I'm con contracting for most of a farm's production, I'm probably not going on the hook for that. So, and, and there are companies like General Mills who are creating funding programs, but they're, they're small. They're not going to change the, the industry. And they're certainly not going to do it as quickly as we need to do it. So to have the government come in and say, okay, we will do that. And, and, uh, and it's the Bank of Agriculture of Thailand that's going to do that. That's a bit of a game changer. And that enabled us to then go to large companies, large uh, uh, industries by crop. So, for example, we're, we're deep in conversations on cacao and sugar. and and they they uh these conversations are manifesting in different ways in some respects it's it's building a regenerative cacao industry in thailand in the sugar area it is it is keeping a sugar industry right now they have a very large sugar cane crop uh it's it's very detrimental uh to to the soil to the farmers to the air when they when they burn the bagasse every year and you know they choke all the cities in Asia that we see every year uh, and so the sugar companies that we're talking to and they're very big companies and and you know their their customers are all the giant food and beverage companies and they're all saying Thailand's soil is so bad that we're going to pick up stakes and we're going to move and we'll go to Myanmar, we'll go to Malaysia, we'll go here, we'll go there, where, where we think we have a couple more years of productive soil before they destroy it, and then we'll have to move again. So doesn't it make more sense if the government is really committed to doing this, to partner with them and do it? So that's mm -hmm. 
those are the types of things that that we are looking to develop and i you know a, a lot of these things and we've got work already being done with companies uh in in thailand so we started all of this now we've got borders that are shut down just as a couple of big things we're going to ramp up and you know i don't know where it's all going to come out i don't you know and and yes it's in some respects perpetuating a globalization uh, system that we have right now. Uh, but, but again, our focus is and our commitment is to mitigate the climate crisis. And, and you know, our theory of change to doing that is, is, is accelerating the restoration of soil and the move to regenerative ag. So, so uh, we're looking at Thailand as, you know, if this really truly were to work the way we're dreaming it can is they would become the first major domino. They're the sixth largest company in terms of agricultural exports. I'm sorry, country. And, and um, if they start growing regenerative goods and, and, and respecting the health of their soil, people are going to want to buy that production and they're going to want to buy it over other types of, of production of the same crop. And so that hopefully is going to force change through the system. So, you know, that's the scale that we're looking at there. Uh, I'll give you a couple other things that we're looking at. Uh, we have a, a, you know, because we have a lot of people at, at the Carmen Underground that have been involved in consumer advertising and marketing and movements and, and you know, things more uh, at, at the public, the people level than a corporate or a governmental level. Uh, we responded when, when um, the United Nations put out a study about two years ago saying that two and a half billion people on earth share these three characteristics about climate change. One is they are extremely concerned. Two is they feel impotent to do anything about it. And three is they have the ability to do something. So, <laughs> so as, a, as a result of that information, we said, okay, so what, what can we give them that, will, that they can do simply, uh, affordably, that can make a difference? And we created the Adopt-A-Meter program, as you've probably heard of. And we, we very soft launched it at the Aspen Institute uh, middle of 19 uh, and and you know it what it does is is for five dollars or local equivalent you adopt a square meter of degraded soil and we restore a square meter of degraded soil and we do it by partnering with companies that are doing land restoration right now and working with farmers and ranchers or or even wetlands and, and you know other areas of restoration and and so that enables people to, to feel that they're, they're literally doing something. So this is something that is a, a crowdsourced action item that helps mitigate the climate crisis. And, uh, you know, even without, because we were gearing up to a uh, big launch for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we're now, in, and we had 
we had corporate partners and entertainment partners and concerts and all this kind of wonderful stuff that was all pretty dependent on people getting together. So we had, you know, hotel chains and as I, sporting events and things like that. So, so now we're, you know, we're looking at what can we do digitally and we're working on it and seeing what we can do. But, but the point was not necessarily, it wasn't about raising money. It truly was about giving people something that they could do so they feel a part of, of the movement to solve the problem. Uh, they know that they're helping farmers, which is increasingly important wherever you are in the world, whether it's you know Chicago or Cairo, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, so, so those are the kinds of things that we're looking at. We're working with uh, uh, organizations like America's Farmland Trust on some very, very high-scale, large projects that would uh, create new models that would be tested on what do farmers in America need to transition to regenerative. You know, how much of that is... is uh, help on, on, on the health of their soil and coming up with soil health planning and how much of that is with different incentives and things like that. So, so those are, those are the kinds of things that we're focusing on now. And, and, you know, again, we're looking at large scale projects. When we were, we were approached by NASA a few months ago when there was the whole uh, anniversary of Apollo 11, there was a there was a mission called uh, One More Orbit, and three of the current uh, astronauts, well, well, two astronauts and a cosmonaut, uh, who have spent more time in the space station than any human beings on Earth, uh, got together to try and break the speed record of flying around the world. Okay, uh, you know, you could you can you can ask yourself how critical it was that we did that, but okay, we're pushing the envelope. Uh, and, and so they came to us and they said, can we make this mission carbon neutral? And we said, yeah, sure. But why? And, and, you know, well, climate change, of course. And, and, you know, we gave them the rap that that's not going to help climate change. We have to go carbon negative, or as some people call it carbon positive right now. Another thing I'd love us to settle on, but, but, you know, it's gotta be, a reduction it's climate positive carbon negative thank you anyway thank you okay perfect thank you uh and and so so they completely bought into it and they said we're in and we're going to fund uh working with you guys the restoration of enough soil that we know we're going to measure the carbon and, and we did all of that and we made the mission carbon negative but the reason we did that and is 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 not it really wasn't because we wanted to do a carbon negative uh, cool mission. It was because the, the, the sponsor of it was Qatar Airlines, and these astronauts are very engaged in the airline world, and we said what we, what we want is we want you to work with us to bring the concept of, of carbon negative flights from here on in. And, and not carbon neutral. And so we've been in discussions with that because 
that scales and accelerates a restoration of land to mitigate the climate uh, crisis. So I keep coming back to that for a reason. You know, that's the mantra. If it's not doing that, we're saying, you know, you, you know, we're not going to engage in it. So, so, so that's been a huge shift. It's a liberating shift. I have to tell you, uh, you know, puts, puts our, our, our asses on the line a lot more than movement building does in some respects, because everything we're doing is quantifiable and measurable and, 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 uh, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, yeah. So tell me, tell me, how are you guys, I mean, this is sort of like a long overdue check-in at the intersection of, of climate underground and region network. How are you providing, um, robust scientifically verified, uh, quantified carbon sequestration units for insetting or offsetting or whatever the mechanism of choice is for these corporates? What does that, what does that look like? Is it, is it this stage is just sort of like socializing and, and agreeing that that's, that's good and sort of building the, the publicity campaigns and things about that? Or, or have you advanced to the stage where you're clear about, you know, what it looks like for them to, to actually you know, like appropriately invest in land regeneration in order to achieve carbon negativity and how that is quantified and verified and, you know, traded and all of those different mechanisms. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you the, the, the same somewhat nebulous, nebulous response everybody else will give you right now, because that's where we're all at. But, but the, the, the way we're approaching, I think all of these projects involves the uh, soil carbon initiative as, as a way of measuring the impact on soil health and and um as you know we were part of creating that with danone and and unilever ben and jerry's uh uh general mills was there green america's very involved and about 150 other stakeholders and and it was created to be a verifiable uh, uh verification tool that business could use on the impact of their supply chain actions on soil health, and it measures four core things. It measures biodiversity above and below the soil. It measures the filtration rates of water. It measures aggregation, and it measures the the shift in carbon that's sequestered in the soil. I will tell you that uh, the last one is it's still the holy grail to us like it is to everybody else. I don't care who you talk to, but when you say, so how are you inexpensively measuring carbon in a way that you really truly trust? And you know, whether it's, it's, it's the depth or, or other ways you want to look at it. And I don't think anybody's real comfortable where, where we're at right now. And, and, you know, that's the bad news. The good news is, as you know, every other day somebody's coming out with a new sensor or a new approach, and and it's getting better and better and better. And you know what used to be a hundred dollars an acre is now certainly dollars an acre, and some people say it's going to get to forty cents an acre, and you know pretty quick time. Uh, what what 
so, so, so the answer is we're at the early stage of all of this and none of our projects are at the point where we're reporting. The SCI is, is having a, a, a boom in opportunity and in testing right now in the sense that we've got probably 20 companies. We just had a meeting on it the day before yesterday, so this is pretty current, but there's probably 20 pilot projects going on, different, different partners that are doing it uh, in different sectors and different regions. And then there are some large scale applications that are waiting to utilize it as well, like, like Thailand, which has agreed to utilize it. So for, and those are large scale projects. And uh, so, so that's our approach. Not that, that that's going to give us all the data or all the answers or everything we need. Certainly uh, that goes into the hopper with the, the economic data, you know, all the things, you know, so we look at that. We look at, acres or hectares that have been converted. You know, we certainly look at, uh, you know, the, the what happens to the value of everything being done. And, and I phrased it that way in the sense that we know that, that if you reduce input costs and you, you maintain and secure your yields, the farmers theoretically should do better. You know, there's, thousands of case histories of that happening. Uh, but we also know that the environmental services is becoming uh, what Nori's doing, what uh, Indigo's doing. Um, those are very exciting types of things, but, but I don't think anybody's got it totally figured out right now. And, um, you know, that's okay. You know, we're 10 minutes into this. So, so, uh, you know, and again, this goes back to the early part of this conversation. How do we partner with technology? How does it serve humanity? And in some respects, how does humanity serve it? To your point earlier, uh, this may be the biggest application of it, maybe the most important application that we're going to see. So, so I guess, yeah. I guess, you know, I'm not giving you the specific, this is exactly how we're doing everything. I'm telling you how we're approaching it right now. No, I, no, that all makes sense. I mean, and I think there is an interesting sort of. There's multiple. There's a lot of different people working on the same problem. That means that it's going to, you know, there's going to be pretty rapid innovation. And I think a couple of years down the road, the the quantification um, and verification issues will be. Um, resolved to the level that they're needed um, maybe even in the next six months or year i think that's i mean we're certainly working very hard on that as as others are and i think there's going to be multiple competing markets as well you know indigo nori uh region network our our approach has always been we we want there to be a robust scientifically verifiable and uh, decentralized governance that's pre-competitive over the foundation of claims and science, um, because th th this new mark, these new markets around carbon drawdown can't be as shitty as the previous mar carbon markets were. 
if yeah, they he, are, he, we'll have yeah. we'll have two or three right. good years right. of bubble right. and hype, and then everybody will no longer believe in the system. And as far as I can tell, we're the only people working at that, like at the yeah. at the, like the infrastructure level, at least in a transparent way, in right. a in a uh, sort of like all the all cards on the table sort of way. Well, um, and hopefully, what we're doing is empowering. I mean, my hope is that what we do ends up. We, we will only succeed in our theory of change and sort of like business proposition if what we're doing is so deeply useful to the carbon underground, to Nori, to Indigo Ag, to the Ecosystem Service Marketplace Consortium, um, all as like a base layer of just sort of like a foundational piece that allows the right transparency and integrity and approach to the digital technology that's going to underpin all of this that everybody you know, adopts it or a version of it, you know, well, and, uh, and I, since it's open source, people can just grab it and yeah, yeah, upgrade uh, yeah, it if I, they need to. So well, we're, we're a hundred percent in alignment with everything you just said and would add to that, that we believe that for this to be successful, we have to be subservient to what nature and the experts in agriculture, who are the people who manage the land, uh, are going to teach us rather than coming up with a set of protocols to give them. Uh, you know, the SCI is an outcome based. Uh, we're going to measure soil health and we kind of like, however yeah, you get it's there. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, my God, what can you teach us that we don't know or what works better in Thailand than, than what we've been doing in West Africa, right? You're going to help us. Yeah, no, it should be outcome based and it should be regionally adaptable. And I think that's fantastic. I'm very excited about how that all ended up. And I think there's a growing, what's cool. I mean, I think for my theory of change, SDI is great. I, I feel very, um, what I would like to see is actually competitive market of standards, essentially. Um, or, or as I would say, methodologies. I think some of them may be standards. Some of them may be, you know, um, more specific methodologies. And and out of that, you then you see start to see, you, you know, like what we're working on right now is the ability to quickly and cheaply um, audit the the competence interval and risk associated with a wide variety of different approaches and make that tool available for decision makers and markets to be able to cost in the risk. Because I, I don't actually think, you know, you know eco, ecological landscape, ecology, soil science, these are all probabilistic sciences. They, they don't give you truth with a capital they give you a statistic like a competence interval that in this place with this soil type you know this test tells you this you know extrapolated across a range because you're not testing everything and so you have to you know it's all there's these thresholds um and the probabilities associated with claims to me that's the foundation it isn't actually obviously over time we'll continue to upgrade the precision of these standards and methodologies and data collection and will lower the cost all of those things will get better and better but the fundamental piece from my perspective that the market needs in order to quantify and value is risk associated so you can determine how much you're willing to pay for and how much sort of gets sort of you know is like hedging the risk associated right. with I, the claim 
right? Yes, and I, and I think what you're hitting on is a big chore ahead of us um, for a couple of reasons. And what I'm talking about, the chore is, is getting people to accept that uh, we're not ever going to be able to predict with, with uh, precision because we're talking about nature. And, and that is the variable. I can tell you how much it's going to cost to make a car on a production line uh, because I can control those things. But, you know, the best analogy I heard is that we've, we've probably put $20 billion into global efforts to be able to predict weather. And all we've gotten to basically is when you watch the weather report, they say, well, there's a 40% likelihood on Thursday. And, and that's much more precise than we used to have. But it's not telling you it's going to or it's not, right? And so when, when you factor the, 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 you know, we factor nature in going, it's a, it's, it's a critical component we have to respect. And the whole point is to work with nature again, right? Let's rekindle this relationship. And, and so we have to factor that in. There are others, as we know, that are going to, and already are attacking the lack of specificity because of that variable. And, you know, well, how am I supposed to invest or how's an industry supposed to change if, if there are these, these potential swings in, in outcomes? And, and by the way... Well, yeah, but the swings are within... I mean, I, just, that argument just bothers me so much because... Yeah, the the swings can be quantified. That's the, that's the thing is, is everybody needs to just back up a second and say, you know, you can like, there's this thing called statistics and it's been around for a while and it allows you to do things like say, okay, if there's a 95% precision associated with a claim or an 80% precision associated with a claim, you can calculate you know, how many carbon units you can successfully claim within the, the, the range of variability that exists. And that's not like, that's just, I mean, the, yeah. the experts to me, it doesn't pull my hair out because people there's, we have to decouple something and we have to decouple the, the ongoing evolution of better and better measurement systems. And as you said, right. they're never right. going to be perfect because because we're dealing with complex adapt adaptive evolving systems that are the weather relates to how much carbon gets sequestered as does the soil type as do the farming practices et cetera et cetera et cetera so you and you can't handle all that we can't actually successfully with a hundred percent precision model reality in that way um but but we can get better and better at it and we can be honest and transparent around risks associated with claims. And that essentially that just allows the market to cost in the, the probability associated with a claim along with the value of the carbon and just have a single price. Um, if that's what we're aiming for, if that's the way to internalize this into corporate books or, or, you know, government or fund it governmentally or create incentive programs, if that's the theory uh, yes. of change. I mean, yeah. uh, you're, you're preaching to the converted, of course, but, but the, the, to me, the, the thing we have to be most uh, intransient on, 
and I use that word intentionally because we're talking about the transient, uh, you know, elements of nature. But 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 we have to we have to convince people that that there is not a perfection in the measurement. It's what you said. It is a statistical probability and prediction that we can feel pretty comfortable about. And well, we what people don't even realize is that's even true with renewable energy credits and carbon oh, abatement. Absolutely. That's what Abs drives me nuts. The, there's like a double standard. Is people talk about you know, emissions from smokestacks as if they have a 100% precision in statements about emissions reductions, and they don't have anywhere close to that. And and so right, I'm just right. like, what's the, like, where, where's the, where's the disconnect that the shift from, from this sort of like mechanical version that even there, there's like statistical risk associated with claims and not very much rigor associated with, you know, like who provided the data and the model and who double checked that so that you actually know something happened. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of like, give yes, it a, like a, minus or something in terms of how those markets all work to preserve integrity <laughs> you're right you're you're right yeah you're a hundred percent correct there, there you go there's something hundred percent but 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 when you look at at some of the groups of people that are going to be engaged in this when you look at a farmer that is um here's where my my the compassion hack goes on and then i'll switch hats in a second but when you look at a farmer that is you know, borderline losing the farm, right? We know what's happening in every, you know, the, the suicides, the bankruptcies. Uh, and you say, we want you to change how you're doing things. They may intuitively believe in it, but, but you know, they, they've been raised in many cases on a, you pour this much out of the bottle, you get this much out of the plant, linearity. And, and so... Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very human unknown fear. You know, it's a fear of the unknown. And so we have to be sensitive and smart about that. The other side of the coin is those people who have been making those claims, right, use this much out of the bottle, uh, you know, they're going to try and drive that wedge with that uncertainty. And, and so that's the one that concerns me more. And, you know, if mm -hmm. you're listening right now, We'll say what we always say, which is you guys know a whole lot about soil and agriculture. Come sit at the table because as, as a lot of the big companies are saying in the food industry, we're about to hit a brick wall if we keep doing it. The well, way. I mean, there are the, the ecosystem service marketplace consortium, you know, Syngenta is on that. Right. Right. <laughs> on, right. Uh, in that group. Uh, I mean, they're it's so. I mean, there, and I mean, I've seen some crazy, scary Monsanto videos that I'm like, oh, wow, that's like they just watched a kiss the ground video and then, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. remade it and put a Monsanto sticker on it. And I, I mean, as you said, I can't I mean, I, I, I generally tend to completely agree with you that there has to be a seat, a seat at the table and this, ha this transformation has to include like there has to be an invitation for these businesses. I, what I like to say, I had this really interesting conversation with an investor who is heavily invested in agrochemical businesses, who is, I was talking with about investing in region network. And he, 
he, he basically came up to me after a pitch and said, so what you're doing is going to threaten the businesses I'm already invested in. And right. I said, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I'm doing and what we're doing and what this transformation is that like either you can choose one or the other. You can choose that there's a functional global economy in 20 years um, wow. or you can choose to continue to get your short-term dividends from those companies in the way they're currently operating. And if you choose to have a functional economy in 20 years, my hypothesis is that's better for your current investments. What I'm saying is the businesses you're invested in are going to have to radically upgrade their, the way that they approach soil health, the way that they approach agriculture in general. They're going to have to find new products and services, and they have a privileged place right now but they're going to have to act quickly and they're going to have to be effective and there's no reason why like like what region network and carbon underground it's a harbinger of change that has to happen so companies can either feel threatened by it or they can sort of like take up the call and evolve their business models to be supporting farmers to have the healthiest possible soil and, you know, internalizing previously externalized environmental costs and uh, supporting all of the stakeholders that they already have incumbent relationships with. Uh, it's a great opportunity, I think, oh, for those, those businesses. Well, they're just going to have to do it with integrity. Otherwise, frankly, they're going to go out of business. Well, That's my look, plan. Look, you know, I mean, it, it, the UN, as we all know, in their UNCTAD report in 2013, said we have 60 harvests left at the rate we are destroying topsoil with, with industrial ag. And so if that's where his customers are and they're going to be gone in what's now 57, 53 years, um, I don't think that bodes really well. You know, it's a little bit like being in the coal business right now. And, and uh, the, the shift is happening. They have the infrastructure. They have the knowledge. You know, Monsanto spent the last several years buying up all these ag data companies. Cool. Great. Wonderful. Let's apply that. Let you make your revenue off that, uh, you know, that asset that you have. But let's, let's keep the system going rather than, you know, manage the, the demise of it, you know, for short-term gain, to your point. But, you know, we, we all know that, right? We all know Yeah. That. Well, and I think I just want to, it's just sort of like, I feel fully confident we can beat those businesses at their own game. The, 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 like, we will make an economy that values soil health and farms and landscapes that are optimized for photosynthetic gain and maintenance and increase of soil organic carbon will be more profitable. And businesses can either participate in that or lose. And at my pledge is that that's going to be something that happens in the next five years and that because we need it to happen that quickly and that will be the next era of, you know, whether it's a global or local economy, that's just what's going to happen. And it yeah. isn't because we're going to like heroically do it. It's because we're, we're all going to participate in accepting that that's just the reality that we live in. That's what's happening. It's an inevitability. That's, it's, it is. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's an inevitability that is different than getting off oil. It, it's it be, because of the criticality of it and because of the fact that 
two billion people on earth are engaged in the activity of growing food, right? So, so if the way they're doing it is, is increasingly failing them and there is a healthier way, there is an, an inevitability, there's also an astonishing joy that comes from it, right? So I, I agree with you. I mean, I, are we going to beat these companies? You know, I don't even like, sure, I, I'd love for them to, to, you know, all flip to the other side right now. And the other side to me is one that, that restores and maintains soil health uh, and farmer viability instead of, of, of uh, working against those three things. And, and you know, but, but, you know, I can tell you right now, the Carbon Underground isn't going to beat them. You know, Regen Network isn't going to beat them, but a movement is, and a movement and, yeah. and, and, and companies dependent on healthier agricultural approaches are, and that, so, you know, it's moving. It's, it's, this is what I, I, I think we're in the early days of an exponential change of the global economy that is inevitable. And, and that, exp that, that shift is, I could sort of like, I could, I could sum up in a simple flip of the script that is sort of the narrative around the same, if you extrapolate the, the, the carbon is the, the devil narrative versus carbon is something that we have to have a healthy relationship. And we understand that there has never been in human history a more advantageous time to optimize photosynthesis because there's never been this much in human history, mm -hmm. this much atmospheric carbon available to convert through photosynthesis into nutrition and soil health. And we energy. are at here, here. like we're at and energy and we're at the ground floor of a new economy that's going to go exponential and people who are first movers and maintain their space, even if it's, even if we don't achieve the non-rivalrous, beautiful, cooperative social vision that I love. When all we do is like shift the, the competitive market dynamics that we currently inhabit to understand the value represented by turning that atmospheric carbon into soil and nutrition and energy in, in the most, in the, the best possible ways. People who understand that that is like the operating business reality of the future are going to be very wealthy and businesses that, that operate in that way are going to do very well. And businesses that don't get that that's what's going to happen are going to be caught in the same way that nations that didn't realize exponential growth of COVID-19. Like if you don't see the exponential curve and you don't take action, then there are consequences. And that's my belief about like the, the, the reality of the relationship between atmospheric carbon and, you know, terrestrial carbon stocks like soil is, is essentially summed up in that kind of meandering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're all doing a lot of meandering right now. So, um, yeah, but, it's fun. but, but it's I great. think, I, 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 but I think the group think is moving in a spectacular direction right now. So as, yeah. as we do that meandering. So it's, it's a, uh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, yeah, it's a race, but it's pretty damn exciting. It's a fun one, you know, and, and that yeah. reframing, 
I think is really exciting. I mean, it, it is essentially what you're, it's a, it's a, it's a different way of explaining what I think you and Tom have done such a good job of in bringing the, the soil health and, and regenerative agriculture conversation to the corporate world, which is it's a reframing from problem to opportunity right. that, you know, th- th- this is, this is this enormous opportunity to, to grow resilience in your supply chain, to take climate action, to create short term, you know, premium markets for, for people in the first world who feel impotent and want to take climate action and are willing to change consumer behaviors at a premium to do so in the short term, at least. You know, all of these things add up to there's almost no downside to people taking immediate swift uh, action. And then if you add in the layer that I'm proposing, which is if you think about atmospheric carbon as the new, you know, like reserve of carbon, that we put it out of the earth and we put it in the sky. And now we get to turn that into wealth generated through agriculture. Get busy because when we get back down to 350 or 280 ppm, photosynthetic efficiency is going to be back down again. There's never going to be a moment that you can, you know, in, in that I am speaking to the like extract value mindset that I think many business people are in. This doesn't necessarily resonate with me as a motivator, but you can very easily get the narrative of like, you know, at 410 ppm, you're going to be much more effective at this basic trans, tr- translation of value from atmospheric carbon and sun to bring it together to create something that the economy needs in a way that sequesters carbon back into the soil so that you can repeat that and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it season after season. Like there's never, it's never going to be easier than right now. So get in and get moving quickly. You know, Otherwise you'll be I'm, left behind. <laughs> I, I, well, back to the domino, right? Right. You know, we'll leave this on. on, There's never been a successful revolution or social change, at least in all the analysis of thousand years of it, that did not have momentum and an expectation of success for it to grow into that revolution, that change. And we have the momentum. We do. I mean, again, predicted to be the number one food trend for this year. We have the momentum. We need to achieve the expectation of success. We need to get to that mental tipping point where, where it just starts building on itself. And I, you know, we're really damn close. I think so. And I think to me, the big, the, 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 the intervention point that I think makes a transition is around a critical mass of, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, in quotes, experts or thought leaders feeling completely comfortable with the, you know, quantification question mm. and having, uh, and, and essentially having consensus that then percolates out, even if people don't understand how that consensus was generated and they don't understand the science or the technology that, um, that underpins that consensus, the, the consensus existing w- people feel and it becomes ubiquitous that that is the case. 
Right. And I think yeah. we're, we're just a little, but I see, like I said, I, I don't think we're very far off from that happening. Um, and it's an enormous opportunity, you know, it's an enormous opportunity because it, it's the intersection. I believe that it, to generate that consensus and to keep it up in integrity so that it doesn't go, doesn't slide the way that previous carbon markets did, or that I even, in my judgment, our academic world has slid, um, or our news industry has slid, that sort of sense-making and consensus of reality has been fragmented and people don't trust things. Right. We have to have a deep level of trust about this, and therefore, the way we approach the generation of that knowledge has to be very thoughtful and well executed at the intersection of sort of, you know, regenerative agriculture and emerging technology, which gives us the ability to have that kind of truth anchor that, yeah, as I said, it's a mess in many other spaces in our society. We can't have the most objective reality that we all live within, which is the health of our biosphere, have that kind of shattered sense making. It needs to be unified. And, and in order to be unified, it needs to have deep integrity and it can't be captured by special interests. So our, that's, that's my personal mission right now is like creating the integrity around the sense making and knowledge generation around ecological health, specifically soil um, and biodiversity beyond soil. I'm a, I'm not a soil maximalist necessarily, as you know, but it has to include that. That's, that's just it. Without that, that piece, everything else doesn't actually work in my mind. At least it doesn't work long enough to achieve our goals. I do think no matter what, regenerative movement's going to go on a five-plus-year uptrend. Um, the question is, does it have the legs to be a 50-year to 500-year to reality instead of just a, instead of just a short-term trend? So, yeah, I, my soapbox. Well, or is, it, or is it just the new reality, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I mean, that, that has to be what it is, right? So. Yeah, um, right. But I guess what I'm trying to bring up is I think there is a risk. There's a hazard. There's a hazard at this moment of, of us falling down. Like, like, let's be frank. Experts can't be trusted anymore. Right. That's a societal that's a societal change that happened over the last, I don't know, five years in terms of like it's ubiquity and people have been in the process of disenchantment around experts for a while, but it's really become clear kind of tracking at the same level as soil and drawdown becoming uh, understood by a wider group as pivotal. So they're kind of like a mer they're 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 intersecting trends of consciousness, and, well, and so that means in order. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and you know, we haven't used the phrase, you know, in the last half hour at least, in the same way we haven't used it in the last month societally of climate change, and at some point we're going to go back to climate change being the biggest threat and it not being, uh, you know, COVID-19. And, and, you know, so when you said a second ago, this has to be unifying, 
it's not mm-hmm. just among people. It's unifying among among issues and solutions. Yeah, you know, agreed. And that, yeah, and in order to do that, we can't trust the experts. Meaning, we have to set up the infrastructure that is more robust than the academic peer review system. We can't fall down the rabbit hole because I can no longer trust someone with a Harvard PhD and a you know, chair on the National Science Foundation right. because they're so caught up in politics right. and they're so right. willing to defend false positions in order to keep their own economic, you know, reality that you, you as an educated person, you have to question everything and that's exhausting and untenable. Correct. And so you spiral into a, who can I trust? What do I trust? Fragmented, fragmented sense-making scenario in which collective action becomes impossible because of the conditions that we've generated in our society. So to me, that intervention point, how do you make in a, in a, in a scenario, in a society where we can no longer trust our experts, how do you create a sense-making and knowledge generating infrastructure around the most important, uh, sense-making and knowledge generation, um, arena of our lifetimes, which is ecological health and soil health, particularly, how do we do that in the best possible way? Can we just rely on a bunch of experts in closed doors deciding that they agree on a standard? No, we cannot because those experts can't be trusted because, because of the way the economic system works. They can't be trusted, not because they're bad people, but because they all have tendrils and incentives that are opaque and not understandable so so that's where the like i just i sort of become this fervent advocate at that moment for you know this other emerging technology this other emerging scenario that was custom built for generating trust out of trustlessness anchoring a sort of a decentralized consensus in a way where you you don't assume that people have the best interests, but out of it, you get the net result is uh, clarity and consensus. And that's, you know, in quotes, yeah, you know, blockchain uh, uh, or distributed ledger technology is is one way in which we create shared reality in a way that you actually can, you know, you can audit, I guess, as an individual at low cost. Yeah, I'm not, low I'm, marginal not cost. I'm not, yeah, I, I, whereas I completely agree with, I'm not as despondent as you appear to be on the reliance on experts. And, and let me explain. There's a convergence going on right now of of uh, of vested interests and and change, and so I'm sitting there going, you know what? The biggest industry in the world is the experts that they believe are going to keep their companies uh, successful, and and. The misinformation that is out there is going to be disproven and they're going to find out what works better and they're going to go with it. 
And, and I have faith that they have the power. When you look at governments, which is the second most powerful entity in the world right now, uh, and you look at the single biggest cost to governments, which is healthcare, and you look at the analysis of the reduction of the cost of healthcare global level from shifting to regenerative agriculture because you're feeding people food with fewer chemicals and greater nutritional content. And it's estimated that it could reduce healthcare costs by 25%. Uh, you know, those are things that I think are going to motivate the people who really truly have this, that scale of, of vested interest and that scale of power to, to find the right ways of doing things. And we all know, we all know that the way we've been doing it is not the right way. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite as despondent as, as what well, I what's heard the, from you. What's and I, the I'm quote, not laying you know, a word on you. I know that you're holding well, I mean, I guess I'm just sort of trying to say, again, that maybe this is a core premise to, or sort of like uh, it's, a, it's a premise that I hold, which is could be encapsulated by this quote. I can't remember who said it, and I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but you, 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 can't, you can't depend on, uh, you can't trust someone who depends on uh, not knowing something for their paycheck to, to learn it. I didn't, you cut out, you're cutting out a lot right now. You can't trust. Yeah. Uh, Larry, actually you, you've I, I been, you've been cutting again. out, you've been cutting out uh, off and on for me for a little bit. It's been enough. I've been able to understand you, but it's, it's probably right, going to be right, hell for our right. listeners. Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe you uh, could uh, try calling in with your uh, you know with a cell or landline into the the number you can um, call into there on the Zoom. Uh, there's bottom left corner there. You can uh, shift from computer uh, like internet me, audio to that. phone. Let me do that. I... All right, let me uh, find your thing. I will. In about ten minutes. Let's uh, let's let's go for the big ending. All right, I'll call you right back. All right. Sounds good. Online one. Okay, you there? Yep, I can hear you. Okay, now Great. you will only hear one of me, which is... Yes, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was just sort of saying this quote, which, which is, you know, in, in rough, you, you, you can't trust a man whose paycheck depends on not knowing something to learn it. Mm. And, and, and although I agree with you and I'm generally optimistic about where sort of, you know, unarguable scientific consensus and common sense are pointing, pointing to in terms of the potential of regenerative agriculture and regenerative land use more broadly and how that, you know, how, how businesses benefit from engaging with all of that, I do think the again that the the fuel for that transition to actually become just the new normal will sputter out unless we deal with that problem which is the perverse incentive around knowledge generation and sense making that currently exists which we see 
writ large with fragmented media and a captured, you know, mainstream media and, you know, the, the reality of, you know, academic institutions and their capture, et cetera. And so there has to be yeah, a real I, concerted effort there I, I don't, in I don't the think short term. Yeah, I don't think this is mutually exclusive, you know, but, but, but I look at it a little bit differently. Um, I look at the fact that, 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 that at least in the latest studies on farmer attitudes in the United States, which may be the hardest to change, um, uh, 93% have said they need to improve the health of their soil. Less than 50% are doing it because they don't know how, but, but, but they know they need to do that. And, and, yep. and then when you talk to the, the people who are buying their production, uh, increasingly, they're also saying we need to improve the health of our soil. So, so if that is a strong and growing awareness, and what everybody's looking for right now is how do we get there? Um, the news media doesn't matter. The 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 uh, disinformation uh, matters, but, 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 but Larry, politicians matter. The farm bill matters. No question. The, no question. The, no question. Especially, you know, mid to long term, but in, in for short term as well. You know, like yeah. the 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 status of the United, the heartland of, you know, globalized provision of agricultural goods in the world in the United States, which is the United States Midwest, you know, in California, um, if with a few strokes of a pen and a transformed farm bill could radically change where do subsidies go and why? And what I, I guess what I'm saying is the entrenched, if, if we think that the entrenched interest that currently the biggest, the world's biggest uh, industry, which currently is massively subsidized in a, in a way that destroys soil health as the foundation of everything. I'm, I'm less optimistic that unless we really are rigorous around not like, like having complete rigor around knowledge generation that, that we won't for completely selfish and fucked up reasons, see the movement essentially, you know, uh, turn into a greenwashing campaign and the status quo maintain itself. Uh, okay, but uh, you know, you, you now you've brought politics into it. Which, which do we have another two hours? But, but uh, <laughs> there's nothing you said that that I'm going to come within a hundred miles of disagreeing with. So, so, and by the way, you don't have to go back to the recent farm bill. Let's go back to the the bailout of a week ago, which has yeah exactly. leveraged up to six point two trillion dollars in it. And I believe if you add all the agricultural uh, stimulus money there. It's about eighty billion dollars. It's it's not mm -hmm. even in there, and yeah. and you know what does that tell you about you know everything from the power of the ag industry that is not in there more, but but to the awareness and and you know all of the elements of food, but 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 uh, you know so you're you're a hundred percent right on that. Uh, you know, and I look at the fact that we are still massively subsidizing the oil industry and, and that's yep. decades of awareness, right? 
So, so, you know, I sit there and I go, okay, so you know what? There is an increasing, maybe for the first time in this arena, an increasing uh, advocacy uh, effort happening around uh, different, you know, agricultural ways of supporting farmers and companies and, and the system. Uh, and it's going to take time. It is, you know, but but again, you, this is no longer just a farming group doing it or farmers doing it. These are large companies. These are in some cases uh, governments that are already reaping the rewards of it. And so they are changing policies more on a state level. Uh, but but you know, I, I, I'm not arguing with you. My my, where I would sort of kick my own self in that is go, okay. But in in 30 years, we haven't stopped subsidizing the oil companies, and we've known a we don't have to, and b it's it's suicidal. Uh, so so where's my confidence that we're going to do it in the food industry? And maybe it's not there. So so um, I I don't know. I mean, you're bringing politics into it, and I also think we have to remember that 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 and the misinformation world and the corporate news and all of that and you know 50% well not 50 whatever 38% today of Americans don't really believe in climate change or believe enough to do anything that's a US dynamic and and um there's there's a lot of other people out there so you know I I remember way back when, and you were around, when we all sat down and said, you know, the, the U.S. is going to be the last company to change the way it approaches agriculture, last country. And, and, and so we all sort of did the, you know, the napkin uh, pencil. Uh, on, on, so can we draw down enough carbon? Can we change enough of the system without the United States to help to reverse the arrow? And the answer is yes, we can. We don't, we don't want to, makes it harder. But, you know, I just, I just always want to remind us that, that as powerful and influential as we are in something this big, uh, you know, we're, we're not the, the, the only driver out there. Well, I mean, I agree with that. <clears throat> and most of my work and our current pilots and everything that's happening in, in sort of my little corner of this movement is, you know, there are several things going on in the U.S. There's a lot more going on in other places. But I don't actually think, I don't think that we can sidestep the imperative of information integrity uh, like to me, it's part of it's a clear part of this sort of irreducible whole that it that demands immediate attention in the right way. And the nice thing is, it's you know, to me, it's baked in fundamentally to if you if you're dealing with something like agriculture that fuels a global economy, you have by its very nature a complex set of stakeholders who are interacting with information and. And the you know supply chain stream of supply that stems from that soil and goes out into the world, you know there's there's companies, there's a farmer, there's consumers, there's the government. That everyone is involved, touches everyone in society somehow, and that that sort of um, it just begs for the appropriate design of how the information flows 
and you know who who owns what piece of that information so if if Monsanto captures ag data and we rely on Monsanto to give us the de- the information about soil health that fuels you know a, a a global carbon drawdown marketplace and governmental subsidies and other incentive mechanisms that realign that we're hoping will realign the economy with ecological health i will just sort of like leave it to you and the listeners to to surmise what happens then well i a i don't i don't think anybody knows but b and i'm was certainly not advocating that we 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 uh put our faith in monsanto to do the right thing okay or buyer and any of these companies um uh, i think that that at this point is still a suicidal decision what i was saying is if they choose to use that data realizing you know as you talked about when you were talking about your investor in that industry uh if they realize that 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 model is being diminished the same way the the oil industry is being diminished or call is being diminished um you know if you want to make money you invest in 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 the new model right and you figure out smart ways to do that if that's what happens with your friend that you were talking about if that's what happens to some of these companies i think that's a good thing you know maybe you know uh, you know maybe they'll learn well, from just the to fact be clear that, he was he was unwilling to change his short term yeah right uh, investment right. strategy and i'm and i'm not expecting any of these it hasn't happened yet you know yes to your point they they talk about it a lot i mean i'm pretty sure that the climate smart trademark is owned by monsanto oh yeah it is for sure you know and and what their definition is is agriculture done in a way that is less <laughs> harmful than it used precision, to be. Precision ag or whatever. It's more efficient right. even. I don't right. Think it's they less, less harmful. harmful. It's not, say, it's not beneficial, more. right? No. It's, you know, it's not. cutting from three packs a day to two packs a day. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, so, you know, nobody's naive here. And, and I'm not expecting. I'm expecting it to happen around them. I am. And and by the way, you know, your what felt like a little defensiveness on on the integrity of information um don't ever uh, you know, you don't have to make that argument here. It is is we, we you know, we we thank goodness live at a time when we do have the ability to measure we don't always have the ability to get the correct data uh, public or, or mainstreamed, right? And, and, you know, that's a problem. And, and you framed it very well, and we have to deal with that. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, yeah, apologies to, to you and anyone listening if I sound offensive. I think it's, it's just something that feels, oh, oftentimes... I mean, I think it's sort of core to what we're trying to accomplish. It's sort of the region network value proposition is, is somewhere at the heart there and sort of set of premises. And I think it's, I, I think I get impassioned by it because my perception is that 
uh, I sort of feel like a lone voice in the wilderness out there, which, and it's not like none of what I'm saying is really all that hard to sort of bake in from the beginning, but it, it does feel as from time to time, I feel like, uh, I feel worried that I'm worried about what happens if we don't bake it in from the beginning, I guess. Um, and anyway, we can put that particular conversation to bed at that. I don't think there's really much daylight between our perspectives there at all, but just to be clear, I just am passionate about it and feel like it needs to be sort of get a, a more of a central stage. It doesn't get talked about much. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I hear. No, yeah. I mean, no, no argument. I'm, I'm hoping maybe it doesn't get discussed because it is starting to get baked in even with all the caveats you threw out, but you know, the, the old mantra, what gets measured gets funded or gets transitioned or, you know, you can put whatever you want in there. It's that measurement has to be, uh, it's gotta be, you know, unadulterated clean data that, you know, the minute we start screwing with that, you know, everything, everything gets undermined. So, so yes, you're correct. A hundred percent. So, so I know that you're, um, have a full day ahead of you and and likely, you know, need to, um, hop to other things. So I wonder if, uh, if you want to just, um, you know, any concluding thoughts or uh, also, and maybe also sharing with listeners, you know, where they can, if they're feeling invigorated and excited about what they're hearing about what the, the carbon underground is doing, you know, how they can engage there. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, the first thing I would say is, and we've certainly hit it on this phone call. Um, we, we are quite possibly living through the greatest transformation in human history in, mm-hmm. in, you know, if we need food and energy and clean water and, and the movements that are happening right now are starting to transition to a, a, a regenerative way, a partnership with nature, as opposed to a taking from nature at, at, at her and our expense. Uh, when you see what's going on right now, when you look at the the pushing down of control over our lives that that a you know a, a a village in Africa can put a solar panel up and and do things they could never do before, including connect with the world, or 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 the the sovereignty that comes from growing your food in a way where you're not dependent on chemicals. Uh, this is a massive, massive shift to mm-hmm. to to a, a a way of living our lives where we're going to feel a part of how that life is is being enabled, and and not be dependent on the systems that have been created. Quite frankly, that, that in some cases have been have been created to make us dependent on that and and you know so you can get off the grid in many 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 different ways and as we do that and we we put the puzzle pieces back in different ways 
going to be really exciting. You know, that being said, we can't expect this to happen by having those typical people that are in power or those typical people that are influential or those people who are willing to give of themselves. This is a an effort that's going to take all of us doing it. And so when you mm-hmm. see a a farmer talking about regenerative support the shit out of him or her when you know when you see a company put a product out there and and it's using regenerative techniques to get there buy it support it you know when you know if if you see a project like you know even adopt a meter you know if you went to adopt a meter and adopted a meter what you're supporting all of that including climate change and i you know, I, I, I fantasize about the day when, when we're looking at climate change going, you know what, we, we, we took care of it. We, 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 we did not see the cataclysmic. It's going to be painful. It's like the next month in this country with Corona. It's going to be horrible. And, you know, best case scenario for climate change is still going to be pretty damn rough. But, but you know, if the plane bounces a few times but lands it's a lot better than crashing and and um and we can do all that and so i guess i just want to go back to let's focus on what's possible and make it happen you know possible less yeah Yeah. possible love it exactly yeah Love it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I just looked at the clock and realized yeah, we, I know. we're we've been, we're, uh, we've been going for a little while, which is which has been fantastic. It's always a, you know, sort of like going through a portal, uh, getting to talk to you, Larry. So I appreciate you taking the time. And um, yeah, super grateful for your your service to the world and all the work that you're you're doing. And yeah, just wishing you and the family health and um, happiness and you know all the blessings in this sort of time of global weirding that was like peak global weirding with the pandemic in full flow you know I hope that it is uh, yeah I hope it's bringing some some unforeseen blessings in some way so um, thanks well, for taking the time here on the podcast you know, and thank you for what you're doing you know with Regen Network and what you're doing in the world and, and, you know, even with this, this podcast, but it's, you know, we're, we're coming together. We're, we're doing this. And, and if we don't believe in, in creating this better world together, uh, we're not going to get there. And it's just, it's a blessing to be able to have these conversations. And, and yes, we did talk for a long time, uh, but it's been, it's been great. <laughs> It's been great. And, and, you know, I just think of all the carbon I'm not emitting because I'm sitting here right now, not in a car. I live in LA, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the big, the big slowdown. It's it's bringing some really interesting unforeseen blessings. I'm, I'm excited what this like economic several month economic pause is doing for our yearly carbon budget for sure. Uh, Absolutely. If, yeah. if nothing else, nature is breathing easier for a moment, and and the population that lives in cities, which is most people, are are sensing it. They're talking about it everywhere. Yeah. 
and and let's just not let anybody forget because we do that all too often. Yeah. So. Amen. All right, amigo. All right. Beautiful. All have right. a, have a beautiful day. Stay Cheers. healthy. Onward. Bye-bye. Thank you.